So hello and welcome back to the Hope Not Hate podcast. This is the Control-Alt-Right-Delete edition. We produce these as a reward to our Patreon backers who receive early access to each podcast. My name is Melissa Ryan and I am the editor of Control-Alt-Right-Delete. Today we are talking with Kim Kelly, who uh, I'm biased, but I think might just be one of the coolest people on the internet. (laughs) Kim is a freelance writer and organizer based in Philadelphia. She's currently the labor columnist for Teen Vogue, and her writings on labor, politics, and culture have appeared in The New Republic, The New York Times, The Washington Post, The Guardian, and Pacific Standard, among other outlets. Kim is also a proud member and council person for the Writers Guild of America East and has been active in multiple organizing and contract campaigns, including serving as the worker organizer for the Vice Union since 2015. Welcome, Kim. Thanks so much for being on our podcast. Thanks for asking me. I'm pumped. (laughs) So I want to start by asking you about your writing specifically, um, because you just write on so much. Um, Just I'm going to list the things that you have written on. Labor, anti-fascism, radical politics, heavy metal, punk, death culture, history, feminism, nonfiction, and things that go bump in the night. (laughs) Can you tell us about your background and how you developed such an expansive beat? Well, I've always been a very curious kid. My grandma is a teacher and she taught me how to read when I was probably like three. And um, I've just always, I don't know, I've just always devoured as many books and as many pieces of writing as I, I could get my hands on. And I've always just been interested in everything. But um, when it came, I mean, I've always, I've always been a writer. It's the only thing I've ever really been good at. And when I was a kid, I would write, you know, the, the typical angsty teenage poems and then like more political poems. And then I got into writing for um, my county newspaper for the teen voice program. And even then I was a little bit all over the place. I wrote about sports and I wrote op-ed columns. That was like during the George W. Bush era. So I got a lot of mileage out of that. And then one day, my editor handed me a, a CD. He's like, hey, you like this uh, this metal stuff, right? Do you want to review this? And I was like, what's review it? What do you mean? And I gave it a shot. And then 15 years later, I, uh, <laughs> I've spent quite a lot of time writing about music, specifically heavy metal, because that's been my life since I was 12. But I've also, over the years, you know, kind of delved into punk and country music, which is what I grew up on, and, and a few other musical bits and bobs. But over the past few years specifically, um, back when I was still working at Vice, I was there for like four and a half years as a, the heavy metal editor at Noisy, RIP, which was their, their music publication. After doing this for a really long time and kind of organizing my whole life around heavy metal and writing about heavy metal, I sort of felt burned out and like maybe it was time to explore some other things because I have a ton of other interests. It was just I felt like I was put in this box. And then around that time that I was feeling that is when we had the um, the organizing drive at Vice. And I got deeply involved in that. And through gaining that experience and, of course, just reading a ton about labor history and labor in general, I started to pivot a little bit. Pivot being like the worst possible thing to say to somebody in digital media in the 2010s. (laughs) But I kind of pulled a pivot and uh, started doing more of that and more political stuff because I was getting more involved in activism, too. And now that I'm freelance, because like freaking every other person who works in digital media, I got laid off um, about six, four, six months ago. I don't even know. It feels like a million years. But since I've been freelance, I actually have time to explore all of my weird interests. So like right now, 
this week I filed a piece um, for Teen Vogue about how Labor Day is a scam. I wrote a piece about the ICE Union for the New Republic. I've got a playlist of anti-fascist metal recommendations going up on Bitch. And I'm also working on a piece for Vox about the week I spent at the Coney Island Sideshow School. So that's kind of where I'm at. Like, I've, I've just been unleashed, basically. I You may be the first person I've ever heard of that was turned to politics and labor issues because of burnout. Um, you know, usually when I, I talk to reporters and, and writers, it's sort of the opposite, that the, the world bums them out so much that they needed to write about other things. Honestly, being in the trenches in the metal world for half of my life, like writing about unions and working class struggle, that's a breeze. <laughs> <laughs> can't imagine <laughs> people have been really mad at me for a really long time so now i just have a a broader audience with which to court their hatred <laughs> oh being a woman online so fun it's great <laughs> so i like that you call yourself both a writer and an organizer in your bio um, and i understand part of that is the experience of organizing a union um, but I think the media industry just has this obsession with neutrality, um, which in these times seems very, um, it just seems like uh, working against their own interest um, in a lot of ways. I, I'd love to get your thoughts on this. Uh, do writers have to be neutral or, or can and should they have a political point of view? I don't really trust anybody who is trying to approach writing or journalism from a thoroughly unbiased point of view because that's a mirage it doesn't exist who you are informs how you write what you write about the stories that you gravitate towards it's i mean i understand like the legacy journalism j school whatever like this is you have to be objective you're just guardians of the truth this that and the other but it's just, who cares honestly everyone is biased i think it is ridiculous to pretend that they are not even the new york times like I mean, I would love to write more for them because, you know, it's good for your career. But honestly, if they were actually committed to being unbiased, they would run columns from me, like an avowed anarchist, alongside the seven billion conservative pearl clutchers that they publish every day. I mean, I don't think – I think you're uh, – I think one does a disservice to the profession to pretend that – people aren't approaching it with their own opinions and perspectives. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really disingenuous that there's this, this perpetual pushback from more ivory tower types who are like, Oh, well this is, you're an activist. You can't say, you can't say this. You have to be unbiased. You have to report both sides. Like there are no, there's no two sides here. Like there's the fascists and there's everyone else. And I know which side I am going to be aligned with at the end of the day. Yeah. Well, it's interesting to me because I, journalists are targeted heavily by the president, by the far right, by fascists. And I, I just don't understand how it's possible for journalists not to have a point of view about this, um, given the, that they're a target. Um, so, I mean, what's your thought uh, specifically on how journalists are targets for harassment and how that affects their political coverage? I'm rubbing my hands together right now because like <laughs> I have some experience with these things. <laughs> I have a question about that, too. <laughs> well, to stick to the broader <laughs> question at the moment, which was, um, oh, shoot, it's like what, how, uh, how, how I feel about how journalists are, have to deal with these things. I'm sorry. I totally like, got lost in my Oh, life. no, I, I just meant how it, how it affects political coverage 
uh, given the, that, uh, you know, journalists are also often the, the subject of what they're covering and, and the target. Um, you know, I've just talked to so many political journalists who are both um, obsessed with remaining neutral, but when you talk to them about the amounts of harassment they get, um, it's just, it's shocking to me that oftentimes folks don't even realize how being the target of that kind of vitriol would affect the way they cover politics. Mm, right. I think that sort of person, for them clinging to the illusion of neutrality, is sort of the only defense mechanism they have left because mm-hmm. they can say, oh, well, I'm doing my job. I'm staying neutral and unbiased. I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. And, you know, they can't fault me for that. But the thing is that they will because you're, there's no winning. If you are a journalist who is even has the tiniest iota of sympathy for anything progressive let alone leftist like you're gonna be a target you're gonna be discredited and attacked and harassed no matter what because that's the the climate we're in if you say something about something political or something about the president or whatever that people don't like you're gonna get slammed it doesn't matter you can be the most straight and narrow Walter cronkite ass person of all time it doesn't matter because i don't think it's uh, you're you're just not gonna escape the bombardment. Like there's no, there's not really any hope of that. So honestly, why don't you just pick a damn side? And it is interesting, you know, as we're recording this. Just yesterday, uh, President Trump was tweeting about Fox News and how they're they're no longer uh, doing their job, and and the phrase "we need to find a new network." And you know, I just I see that, and I think, well, man, if Fox News can't be spared, then <laughs> what hope does anyone else have? Right. Honestly, like we're dealing, we're in an era of state TV. And if the state TV station, you know, makes a misstep by reporting something that's slightly close to the ballpark of the neighborhood of the truth. Well, I mean, that should say something, right? If Fox News can't stay ideologically impure enough to please the president and his cronies, like what hope does an independent journalist or a freelancer or someone who actually cares about humanity? Like, If his like if his literal lap dogs are getting kicked now, like who are you trying to impress by being impartial? Like, yeah, it's just nonsensical to me. Um, I'd love to also talk about because um, you are also a union organizer for journalists, and harassment and threats are obviously a workplace issue. They're a labor issue for anyone covering the president, for the far right. I mean, anyone covering anything. Um, I know from conversations with reporters that they're not getting as much protection as they feel they need. Uh, you know, that includes both ones that are, you know, traditionally employed and freelancers. Um, how can unionization um, and uh, help with this? Is that part right. of a bargaining contract or? You can absolutely put some protections in place. Um, something that we did in the last vice union contract to help negotiate, which was our second for that unit, um, we put in a cyber, like a security, cybersecurity clause mm-hmm. with a bunch of stipulations on how we expected management to support and step in and do what they can to, like, assuage, assuage, how do you say that word? I know how to type it. Assuage? Yeah. <laughs> Wouldn't have fun with that. Watch, we've both said it wrong. <laughs> I'm like, I didn't go to a fancy Send school. Send your hate mail about our pronunciation here. Oh, God, I'm still a redneck, man. I, I can do my best. But <laughs> as I was saying, there's there are steps that a workplace, an employer, a management can take to help protect 
their workers who are engaged in this kind of reporting, especially those who are in you know more marginalized positions. At Vice, when I was there, the people that reliably got the most abuse were women and trans folk and people of color, queer people, basically everybody who was already going to get like dumped down on the internet anyway. Like having a platform and like having a sort of elevated visibility in this space. It's kind of it's it's a workplace hazard. And advice I will say is funny, and this is before the, you know, the regular Nazis were mad at me all the time. This is back when it was just metal Nazis mad at me. We had a, a there was a one guy who was like obsessed with me to a point where I was like a little much. And there, were, there was a security team at Vice who actually went and like compiled a dossier, went through a lot of legal, you know, mumbo jumbo and like to to do a threat assessment, yeah. which did it, which felt good. They're like, I mean, the end result was, well, he didn't say he was going to kill you. So it's not a lot we can do, but we'll keep an eye on it. I was like, well, great. But it's something. I mean, the bar is pretty low. The bar's really low. And even losing, you know, that measure of security or support, it can be really destabilizing when you get laid off or if you're freelance and never had it in the first place. Like, even just having someone with some modicum of power being around that you can email and be like, hey, this troll is kind of going from troll to, like, might stalk and murder me territory. It's nice. Like, any being advice, we had, you know... Being part of that web meant that if somebody was like wilding out on Twitter or like people were freaking out at you on on Facebook, like there's people who could call Twitter or who could call Facebook and pull some strings, which is really handy. You know, at one point I had this one guy, that same guy who like wanted to like rape, murder, whatever me because I liked different bands than he did because men are sensible creatures. Uh, made a Facebook page just because I have like a, a small physical disability, which isn't that big of a deal. But he made a whole Facebook page mocking it with like photos and it was really gnarly. And it took, we reported it to Facebook. Facebook didn't do anything. It took having somebody in comms calling them being like, hey, can you take this down? Are you kidding me? To make it go away. And like that was an immensely privileged position for me to be in because most people don't have that. And now I don't have that either. I'm just on my own too. And it is terrifying. Yeah. And I mean, I, I think the far right absolutely knows this, right? Um, I think about Learn to Code, which happened after so many journalists were yes. laid off and it was just weeks and weeks of harassment. Um, and it was fascinating. I, I got caught up in it anecdotally because I had um, published an op-ed for from BuzzFeed. Um, so I got all these um, weird emails celebrating my demise at BuzzFeed even though I had never worked there. Um, but just like uh, journalists I know who'd just been laid off were just harassed for weeks and weeks. And of course, their contact information is all over the internet because they have to be available, you know, per their beat. And it's like not even just like, it's such an intentional strategy. Um, I got those emails. Like, I didn't get it as bad as some people did. But I, I think the vice layoffs the last were on like the tail end of that. But I definitely got emails and Facebook messages when I had Facebook and like tweets. It's just there's there's a, a gleefulness about it because people yeah like all that kind of people like all right fatty trolls hate the media because they don't like that we pursue the truth <laughs> or at least some some aspects of media. There's still the daily callers and bright bars of the world, <laughs> but they're safe um, spaces. Oh my god, that bright part thing was so dumb. All these 
both sides, milk toast, liberal ass, like fancy rich people reporters are like, you can't be mean to them. The free press, it's important to let them, it just, just because, you know, that they're a literal white supremacist propaganda site, they should be allowed to cover whatever they want. It's like, who are you trying to impress? They're not going to like you. Regular people are going to be turned off. Trump's not going to send you a nice tweet. Like, what's your end game? Like, yeah. you're just press your other fancy ass peers like the world's on fire stop being such a stooge yeah for for readers uh the o'rourke presidential campaign uh asked breitbart to leave an event a campaign event that they were covering i believe the event was about gun violence specifically which is probably why they were asked to leave is that at hbcu and he was in the staffer said that well having this this literal fascist here is making people uncomfortable like it was majority students of color yeah and it was like why would you want a, a nazi covering it and twisting it and making people feel uncomfortable like who yeah i understand the yeah that was specifically new york times reporters who i think are just having a contest to see who can be the most out of touch on the internet at this point that's the only it's explanation wild and like i've written one or, i've only written a couple of things for them and i would again because it's a good way to get your work out there but oh my god like just because you're mad fancy and like we're for the fanciest paper ever and probably make more money than i ever will doesn't mean you have to be such a nerd (laughs) that's (laughs) not nice the nerds oh my god they're never gonna (laughs) let me write for them again Uh, well, we've alluded to it twice, uh, so I'm going to ask, uh, you were put through the what I call the Fox News meat grinder uh, <laughs> by Tucker Carlson, and it cost you a long-time gig as a music contributor for National Public Radio. Um, can you explain to our listeners what happened and, and what that experience was like? Uh, well, it sucked, I will say. Yeah. Not ideal, not a fan. Um, so what happened was, I was... Um, Right. It was, it was, I think it was a couple weeks ago, maybe last month. Time is a flat circle at this point. But it was a few days after uh, this longtime anarchist out in the Pacific Northwest, Willem Vince Bronson, had gone to uh, an ICE facility in Tahoma, or Tacoma and had, you know, attempted to sabotage some ICE vehicles in an unoccupied parking lot that was separate from the building. And he was gunned down by the police and murdered. And there's obviously a lot of discussion around that. And I'd share some thoughts about it, about how basically this is an act of righteous sabotage. I mean, going back to, you know, World War II when partisans targeted infrastructure. Like, this is is what resistance looks like. So, tweeted about it, then went about my day. I tweet a lot of things in that general vein because I'm like an anarchist. Like, what do you want from me? I'm not going to be out there telling you to register to vote. You can if you want. It's great. But it's not what I'm – that's not my priority. But anyway, <laughs> and I noticed that that tweet, like that little thread, was getting a bit more pickup than I expected. And I was like, hmm, this seems like that could go poorly. Because I saw that some big conservative accounts were tweeting about it. I was like, mm, okay, let's go private. Let's just nip this off in the bud. I went private, didn't think about it. And the next day, <laughs> I was talking to some friends in this group chat I'm part of. And one of them's like, hey, uh, Kim, you're on Tucker right now. I was like, what? I'm what now? Tucker Carlson. And they sent me a video shortly after. I'm like, prime time Fox News, nine o'clock. Tucker Carlson, like, froze, Swanson frozen dinner millionaire boy 
face like a wet potato, spent a minute and a half going on about how I specifically was inciting terrorism. He was harping on the fact that I write for Teen Vogue. He reserved some like specific ire about you know, me being Teen Vogue's labor reporter because young women obviously have no interest in the world around them. And, uh, yeah, and he capped it off by pulling out very arbitrarily, as far as I can tell, uh, the fact that I also wrote for NPR. Yeah. And so he could say, like, oh, well, your tax dollars are funding this. And he, like, posted, like, he had photos of my tweets and stuff. Thankfully, he didn't put my photo because I feel like that would have been really dangerous. Yeah. Still, I'm, like, freelance writer with, like, you know, a decent amount of followers, but I'm not exactly, like, a million people following me or whatever. And I just see this, and I'm just like, oh, my God. This is – and he's the worst one. Like, yeah. if it was a regular Fox News person, it'd still be terrible. But this is, like, the Nazi poster boy who, like, basically gives Stormfront and 4chan things to jerk off over every night. So I was like, oh, Jesus Christ, and a cross. This is going to be unpleasant. So I kept things locked down, and uh, I took my content info out of my bio on Twitter. I went through and made sure to delete every, and I don't really, I don't post photos of myself or my loved ones on the internet, on Twitter anymore anyway, but I went through and just scrubbed any potential thing that could identify me or my my people, because I just assumed it would be a huge troll attack coming, but I realized, I mean... It's, it's not even like a big revelation. I just sort of remembered after a few hours or a day or so, like, oh, that's right. The kind of people that watch Tucker Carlson are like mostly angry old people and then internet trolls. And the internet trolls couldn't get to me because I had everything locked down. And the angry old people weren't going to put that much effort in because I'm sure they didn't really know what was going on anyway. So it worked out okay. I stayed private for a few days until it, I thought it died down. Then I kind of just went about my business and was like, oh, okay. Oof. That was okay. That went better than it could have. And then I got this cryptic email from a person at, uh, at NPR just being like, hey, Kim, uh, can we make some time to talk tomorrow? I was like, my first thought, because I've been writing for them forever, was like, oh, maybe they're working on something new they want me to do stuff for. And I thought about it. I was like, they would have said that. This seems like a intentionally cryptic like email mm. that is probably going to go well for me. And at that point, it was just so strange to me that he seized upon the NPR affiliation because I haven't even I've been writing for them since 2011, but I hadn't really done very much in the past few years because I was at Vice. I think the most recent thing up until then I'd published was uh, in 2017. And at that point, I was actually working on an assignment that they had come to me with uh, that was due, <laughs> I think it was actually a little past deadline, <laughs> but uh, that was the first thing we'd really worked on together in, in Mad Long. But so I, this per- I you know, talked to this person, and basically they told me that <laughs> my, uh, I, I wanted to write, transcribe it, but I was talking too fast, I also got pissed off. Yeah. But the thing that stood out to me is that they're saying, my activist stance was in conflict with their journalistic ethics, and so I couldn't contribute to the site anymore. And uh, at that point, I was like, I'm just mad. I was like, okay, so first of all, you're telling me that nobody in your whole network 
hundreds, maybe thousands of contributors has ever expressed a political opinion on the internet. And she's <laughs> like, well, I can't discuss individual people, but you, you know, you, you clearly seem to identify as an activist and that is, you know, that's just what the rules are. Yeah. And I understand that in theory, like that a lot of public and like government funded uh, outlets are like that. They have to hew to a very strict code of ethics about social media and bias. And I so I, I think I think it's NPR. They're not employees aren't allowed to really talk about politics publicly because that somehow will besmirch their unbiased view or whatever the hell. But um, and I asked this person's like, yo, so this is about Tucker Carlson, right? And they're like, well, that is uh. That is what brought it to our attention, yes. And then we looked into it and and realized that you're very much uh, an activist sort of person. So that is what led to the decision. And I was just like... Which is bizarre for an organization you've been working with since 2011. And I went through, I was looking at some of my older pieces and was like, literally everything I've written for you is about, like, gender or, like... Yeah. uh, like there's there's political threads in everything because that's how I write. That's how I've always written. Yeah. I mean, I've definitely upped the ante in the past few years, but it's not a big surprise. It's kind of my thing. So it was clear to me that they just feared some sort of backlash from the Tucker Carlson thing and decided, okay, like we can afford to just lose this person. Like she's not worth it. It's yeah. fine. And I was like, okay, well, am I allowed to like say swear words on here? Uh, sure. Oh, my God. Thank God. I've been trying to, like, hold it back. (laughs) (laughs) Like, man, fuck this. This is dumb as hell. And I was just like, I know what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to lick my wounds and stay quiet because you don't want to burn any bridges. But, like, fuck that. screwed me over. And you didn't do that. You wrote a piece for the Columbia Journalism Review about your experience, um, which uh, was all over my Twitter feed for a couple of days. Um, It was it was great. I highly recommend listeners read it. Um, What has the response been from your peers and others in the industry about what you went through and and, um, how it might make them vulnerable? Well, I mean, the CGR piece happened because I was very public about this. I, I tweeted about it and it got a lot of pickup in a way that like freaked me out at first but it seemed like most people were saying this isn't cool like npr messed up like this is chilling like this should not be the standard yeah and then cgr hit me up and asked me to write that piece which is cool i was like i sort of wish my columbia journalism review debut had been about something besides tucker carlson yelling at me but you take what you can get when you're freelance you know but um i think it does raise a lot of questions about the future of i mean not to be too grandiose but it's kind of of a question about the future of journalism right like what does it mean that and i mean they weren't that big it wasn't that big of a deal that they stopped wanting to work with me like i write for a billion other things and it's not like they pay that great but it just shows like is it going to be more difficult for journalists who who express political opinions and personal opinions online to get work like are we going to get blackballed is it going to be are we going to get to a point where people are afraid to actually talk about their political stances because they worry it's going to impact their career? And I mean, I sh- and people already do that. Like, there's a certain amount of self-editing that goes into, you know, this whole hustle. I mean, yeah. I don't 
do very much of it anymore, but some people who are probably better at the long game than I am, I absolutely pay more attention to these things. Well, and just that anyone can be a target. I mean, it's it's strategic. There's really not much you can do to protect yourself. Um, you know, we can protect each other in solidarity, but so so often I feel like what happens is these extremists, the Tucker Carlsons of the world, they go after folks who are already vulnerable, who are already isolated. Um, and, you know, sort of the, the best way that I, I know to stand up to that is through solidarity. Um, and I, I just feel like we're not yet seeing enough of that in, in the media industry. It's because people are afraid. It's a really volatile industry. Everybody who has a staff job knows that they could get laid off tomorrow. Yeah. Um, people that don't have the luxury of a staff job. I mean, I had a staff job and it sucked too, but being freelance is a lot harder for a lot of ways. And it's such a cutthroat industry. Like it's, I mean, there's only so many publications left. Only so many of them pay anything resembling a decent wage. Like we're all kind of climbing over each other like a bucket full of crabs. And I'm sure that there are people that saw that happen to me and were like, good, that's what you get. Like, I'm sure whenever that happens to other people, there's some some folks approach it in that sort of vindictive way. Like, good, one less person, like one less person to be competition, one less person to get in the way. And I think it's really, <clears throat> I think it's really, uh, it's really damaging and awful because we should be working together. We should be, you know, embracing solidarity that you said. And there are efforts to do that with, you know, the IWW's Freelance Journalism Union, the Writers Guild and National Writers Union have this collective project they're working on. But it's just the, the instability that's so endemic in the industry means that we're sort of always caught off guard. Like no one ever feels safe. And that yeah. makes it makes it harder for us to relate to one another. And it I think it makes it harder to protect one another too. Because like you said before, they pick vulnerable people. Like I'm, you know, if I met, if I ran into Tucker Carlson at a bar, I feel like I do all right. But like on the internet, <laughs> on TV, like what? You, I'm just a freelancer. I write for a couple places. He basically tattled. He basically like went to speak to my manager because yeah. he didn't like what I was saying, and he won. Like he won that battle, and he and but I don't think they're gonna win the war. I will say on a. And aside, I won't get too much into it for like various reasons, but that whole segment lost me another job, which was like way bigger and fancier because the publication was afraid of getting bad press. So like this has had material impacts on me, on people I know, like other friends who have been victims of this like right wing pile on. Like it's going to keep happening unless people start standing up for each other yeah. and uh, stop pretending that there is something trust and stop pretending that there is anything real to the both sides thing there's only one side we know who the good guys are and we definitely know who the bad guys are well i really appreciate you talking about it tweeting about it and writing about it um i think a lot about how it will help the next uh writer or activist who finds themselves caught in the the right-wing meat grinder because it's it's really awful and it's isolating so uh, if anything um, good can come out of it, I hope that you are an inspiration to folks in the future who are facing this and that they maybe have someone to turn to. Oh, man. I'll tell them. Just <laughs> the scariest thing for me was like my grandparents have Fox News brain and I was like, oh, my oh. God, is my grandma going to call me and be like, honey, Tucker Carlson just told me that you're a terrorist. <laughs> 
And that's not a conversation I need to be having with my 81-year-old grandpa. <laughs> no, I'm not a terrorist. I did. Yeah, I don't know if you've seen Kathy Griffin's concert movie, but she talks about having to explain to her mother that no, she didn't join ISIS. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> 2019. Um, uh, so I want to change tack just a little bit, because one of the things I learned while... Um, doing research for this one is that you are currently organizing an anti-fascist, anti-racist, extreme metal festival for early next year. (laughs) Um, I, which I, I, everything I get to read out loud, um, from, from your bio to your Twitter handle, it's always amazing. Um, but can you tell me more about using music and culture to fight fascism? Yeah. I mean, this has been my world since I was a little kid. Like I got into metal when I was 11 or 12 and you know, it's a huge part of me, even if it isn't, entirely my job anymore and something that we've seen happening i mean well metal is a especially the more extreme kinds that i like like death metal black metal grindcore doom um they're a microcosm of the rest of society right so everything all the issues that the broader society has filters down into metal and tends to be amplified because there's this sort of more extreme theatrical outsider culture aspect to it so We've been dealing with Nazis for mad long. Like, this is not a new thing at all. There's been this sort of culture war fomenting in the metal space for years. And, you know, I remember how it used to be everyone was upset about posers. And then they're upset about hipsters. And then they start being upset about social justice warriors. Mm. And now they're all mad about Antifa. And it's just been a, this progression of... Uh, new boogeymen to be upset about who that who some people not and not even the majority there's just a section of metal fans who veer more conservative they want to keep metal dangerous they want to keep metal offensive and shocking which means that they're allowed to say the n-word a lot i'm not entirely sure what their end game is really at this point Mm. (laughs) but so there's been a lot of pushback to that and there has been this kind of explosion well maybe not explosion but like a, a steady groundswell the past few years specifically of explicitly anti-fascist, anti-racist, like anti-oppressive metal bands. And I've been documenting this for, I mean, since I noticed it happening um, at Noisy. And now we're at a point where people are really having these conversations out in the open. Bands are taking stances. Uh, people are voting with their wallets when it comes to labels that facilitate problematic behavior and work with problematic bands. There's, there's definitely a cultural moment that we're in the midst of. Just most of the culture doesn't know about it because no one pays attention to heavy metal. But I pay a lot of attention to it. And so uh, last year, I <laughs> I was just thinking about it. So, um, Dawn Raid, this anarchist black metal band from up north in England, I saw they were playing this anti-fascist like loud music festival. And I was like, man, I wish I could go to that. I wish we could have that here. Then I thought about it. I was like, hmm, what if we did, though? Then I just idly tweeted, like, who wants to give me a bunch of money to put on an anti-fascist metal fest? And I texted Don Raid. I was like, yo, if I did this, would you play? And they were like, yeah, you should do it. And I was like, hmm. And then my friend Meredith, who works at Kickstarter, messaged me and was like, yo, I can give you money to do this. And I was like, hmm. And I kind of fell into planning my own anti-fascist metal festival that's fantastic and then it went out the first year we had it at the end of january on my birthday it's called black flags over brooklyn 
it was great. We almost sold out. Everyone had a really good time. Uh, it got written about in like the New Yorker and Rolling Stone. And it, it was really interesting how it was received. And we're working on the next one for this year. We're still like, I've been really busy this year. Well, with, there's been a lot of chaos. Yeah. So, but I've also started working more collaboratively with other people, which I'm a control freak. So that's been difficult, but necessary. So we're working on another one in a different location because Brooklyn is like, you know, Brooklyn is Brooklyn. It has a lot of resources and a lot of diversity and a lot of access to things that people in other cities don't have. Like Brooklyn needs an anti-fascist metal festival, but there are definitely other places in the country that really need an anti-fascist metal <laughs> festival. So the idea is to kind of travel around. And I never really thought I would end up being a festival promoter, but I mean, someone's got to do it. May as well be me. That's great. Um, I am glad to hear that not all music festivals are the disaster that is the fire festival. So <laughs> the trick is to to know your limits and pay the workers. <laughs> pay people. Oh, that's that's a good trick, for, I think, for life. <laughs> uh, well, thank you so much for being uh, being on with us today. I was really excited to interview you, Kim Kelly. Um, where can our readers find you online? Uh, oh God, I'm so online. It's terrible. <laughs> um, <laughs> honestly, the easiest way to find me is uh, on Twitter, which is at Grim Kim, which was my college DJ, uh, my college radio DJ name that stuck. I started using it when I first started writing about metal, and now it's kind of funny that that's still my name. But uh, <laughs> that I also have a uh, um, I can never say it properly. Another one of those, a Patreon, Patreon. Patreon. Yeah, Patreon, Patreon. Yeah, I just started one of those. And, you know, there's original stuff on there, but I've also just started collecting all of my published work on there for people to, who are interested to just be able to find really easy. And, um, yeah, those, those are the two main places. I write for too many places to really chase me down otherwise. I am, uh, I, I am proud to be a patron of yours, and it's been really great to see, not only because I always know what you're publishing, but some of the original content that you do as well, so... Um, I, I am I am also a fan of your Patreon page. <laughs> a little more personal. There's not a lot of space to be vulnerable on the internet, so I figured having a, a thing like that where people, they care enough to give me a couple bucks to read it, they're probably not going to hurl abuse at me. So you can open up a little bit on there. Which is nice, because there's a, not a lot of places on the internet that one can feel safe and appreciated. That's kind of a... Yeah, that's a, kind of a beautiful dream. So. <laughs> Patreon is the last refuge on the internet. Oh, so far, man. <laughs> um, well, I think that's a good note to end on. Um, that's a wrap on today's podcast. Uh, Kim, thank you so much for joining us. If you like the work that we're doing, uh, please be consider becoming a supporter of the Control-Alt-Right-Delete Patreon. Uh, our members help make the newsletter and these podcasts possible. Uh, we will be sure to include a link to where you can find Kim and the Patreon page in the show notes. Thanks, everyone. Thank you.